This is the first of several episodes where we discuss the trauma-related experiences of educators of color. Merriam-Webster defines trauma as a disordered psychic or behavioral state resulting from severe mental or emotional stress or physical injury. The narrative of trauma can be found in our lived experiences. It can also be seen in others' willingness to stand by in silence while they watch us in a state of despair. Remember that your silence on these matters is essentially complicity. Ellie Vassell said, I swore never to be silent whenever and wherever human beings endure suffering and humiliation. We must take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. If you take nothing else away from today's discussion, please take away the importance of using your voice to support, advocate for, and protect teachers of color. Because even when we shout our needs from the mountaintops, it is seen as an inconvenience that can easily be overlooked. Please do not wait for someone to cry out in pain before you help them. Let's start the show. All's my life I has to fight. All's my life I hard times like yeah, bad trips like yeah, Nazareth. I'm f***ed up, homie. You f***ed up, but if God got us, then we gon' be alright. Welcome back, everyone. This is our second episode. My name is Maria Elena. My name is Susie Hodges. My name is, oh, do I say my name? Yeah. Okay. My name is Dr. Raydell Boateng. Oh, I love the way you say that. We are here today to talk about trauma in social justice work, specifically trauma of the people who are doing the work, right? Because I think so often in education, there's an emphasis on the needs of children and students, which there absolutely is, should always be the center of everything we do. But in order for us to properly serve our populations and, and be engaged in a meaningful way, we have to make sure that we're not functioning from a place of trauma. And so often when our voices are, I don't know, contrary to whatever the mainstream voice might be, it's easy to experience a lot of um, gaslighting and, and really traumatic experiences. So we're here joined by Dr. Raydell Boateng. Say it for me one more time. Boateng. Boateng. Yes. We're going to be talking about trauma today, but both in our personal experiences, but just also systemically how trauma shows up. First, I want to refer to a conversation that I had with a mental health professional uh, named uh, Emily McKenzie. I asked her, uh, basically, what does trauma look like and what are some behaviors that we see when people are experiencing trauma? And Emily told me that trauma responses can be articulated simply when put into three categories, fight, flight, or freeze. Fight would be feeling angry, wanting to seek revenge, obsessing over what you, the victim, uh, did wrong or what went wrong. Flight would be silence, denial, or separation from identity. 
Uh, for example, someone identifying primarily with a less oppressed identity, so choosing not to affiliate with a group that might be experiencing oppression. Or freeze, which is helplessness, disengagement, ambivalence, and num numbness. From a physical standpoint, trauma lives in the body the way a lot of mental health issues can. So that looks like fatigue, pain, loss of appetite or increased appetite, digestive issues, trouble focusing. Um, and it's important to unpack because there's a significant emotional and physical weight to it. Emily also later mentioned that trauma experienced long-term can definitely impact the quality and length of one's life, which we know that a lot of people of color experience trauma daily, right? Like constant triggers, traumatic triggers daily, which can impact the length of a lifespan. Dr. Raydale, first, how are you? <laughs> I'm laughing because I had a conversation with myself when I was brushing my teeth this morning and decided that in 2022, we need to have other ways of greeting each other because how are you? Like, how does anybody answer that question anymore? Like every time some, I mean, anytime someone asks me that question, I was like, I, I don't like, I don't know how to answer that. Like, I really don't know how to answer that. Like the world is going through so many things right now. This country is going through so many things right now. Black people, black women continue to go through things right now. And so, and then personally, you know, going through things right now. So I don't really know how to answer that. I feel like in the context of all of those things being challenging, like I'm here, I'm alive, I'm breathing, you know, I'm relatively healthy, um, but life is hard right now. So how am I? Hmm, I that, that, that's how I am. That's how I am right now. That's real. And I appreciate your honesty because I feel like, and you all know this because we all have lived in Seattle, right? Like, how are you? It's like, I'm great. Thanks. And it's like not even pausing to actually think if that's true. <laughs> so I love that you use that as an authentic moment to share about yourself. Thank you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. How about you, Susie? How are you? Um, I think it's like along with what Raydell was saying, what you were just saying about in Seattle, where everybody's like, how are you? Like, I'll be running down the street. How are you? How are you? Like, do we even stop to listen to the answer or care what the answer is? It's just like, mm. I'm here and I see you. I've acknowledged your presence and now I'm going to move on. Um, I know that's not what you're asking, though. Um, I'm all right. There's a lot going on, like Raydell said. But I am powering through, taking it one moment at a time. And doing what I can with what I got. Mm -hmm. How are you? Well, thank you for asking. Um, I'm doing all right. You know, um, I'm going through quite a bit um, emotionally and mentally, and I'm grieving the loss of a few different things. Um, but I'm trying to open my, my mind and my heart up to different possibilities. So I'm using this as a moment in my life of excitement for new opportunity and, and, and taking it as a chance to not fight against what the universe is throwing to me, because I think for a long time I've been fighting against what I kind of already knew deep down inside. Right. So, um, how am I doing? I'm not great, but I'm getting better. All right. All right. And I'm sure that if we spoke to other people all over the world right now, 
And this is a traumatic time in general, right? Like so mm-hmm. much of what's happening in our society is like deeply upsetting to watch and experience, particularly for educators, right? And yep. um, I hate to say, I think that we're in the majority, like not being okay right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So listeners, um, we gave... We have a few questions that we want to ask Dr. Raydell. And Dr. Raydell, can you tell us about your background a little bit? Tell the listeners who you are. Uh, yes. Who am I? Um, I am the daughter of Hester and James um, and the granddaughter also of Hester and James. So my grandparents have the same name as my parents. Oh, no way. That's cool. That's who I'm from. Yes. Um, I am... A sister, an auntie, a wife, a fur baby's mama. I am an educator when you think about my career. Um, But I like to not start with my career these days with introducing myself because I am so much more than that. Yet at the same time, my career is an important part of who I am. So I consider myself to be an educator, although not everything I do is necessarily related to education. My background, let's see. So currently I uh, have a coaching business um, that is focused on supporting women in being liberated and uh, recognizing the ways that racism and sexism in particular entangle us, what that looks like for white women, what that looks like for women of color and particularly black women, because I'm a black woman. Um, And so I support people in a whole bunch of different areas um, of life and work um, around uh, decolonizing and liberating their lives and their practice and whatever roles that they have. Prior to that, I I also teach um, some university courses to um, in teacher preparation programs um, and support work around being culturally responsive and anti-racist racial caucusing. Um, so I do that remotely at a couple of universities in the Seattle area. So prior to that, I was a classroom teacher. I was a teacher for, we'll say six years, probably more like five and a half. And we'll get into why the half, I'm sure, at some point in this conversation. And I taught elementary school and I loved it. Fifth grade is where it's at. It's my jam. I've also been a coach for teachers and taught in teacher preparation programs uh, during my grad school career. And I guess I started out my working life wanting to be a journalist um, and majored in journalism. Oh, I think all three of us have that in common. (laughs) That's Um, why we're here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then decided that journalism was not for me. Um, Yeah. And then I became a teacher and I feel like I, it wasn't, I don't think anything happens by accident. Like it was definitely divine intervention, but I did not grow up wanting to be a teacher. So it surprises me sometimes when I think about it, that this is what my, my life's work is, is being an educator and um, trying to decolonize education. But yeah, that's, that's my professional background. Anything else you want to know? Raydell, where, or Dr. Raydell, sorry. Where are you from? (sighs) That's a great question. <laughs> I will say I grew up in New York, New York State. Um, I have not lived there since I was 17, though. 
Um, I have lived in Chicago. I've lived in Phoenix and I've lived in Arizona. No, in Seattle. Phoenix is in Arizona. Duh. And I've lived in Seattle in the U.S. And then now I currently live in Ghana, which really feels like home. So I feel like ultimately like I'm from the motherland. But, you know, I grew up in New York and have lived in different regions of the U.S. Thank you. Um, mm-hmm. So one of the questions that is at the center of this discussion that we're having today is what is trauma? And I was wondering if if we could take a moment to just, you know, I, I gave the definition that I had from a mental health professional who I spoke to, but I also would love to hear from you all. Like, what is trauma to you? Susie, do you want to start since I've been talking for a while? <laughs> um, well, you know, this is just me talking. Um, but I think that trauma is like the stuff that weighs you down and keeps you from having your peace. Mm. I think trauma is the hurt that plays over and over in your head and on your soul. Trauma is things that should not have happened. Um, if liberation and true freedom were real and, and actualized and realized, um, yeah, trauma is not your fault. Mm. I like a lot of the time, which why I think is part of why it can be hard to reconcile trauma and to, um, to, to grow from it, to, to kind of release yourself from it sometimes. And I feel like the impact of trauma unrealized or trauma that's like untreated um, is that you kind of end up being an asshole to other people and, the trauma that I have experienced, I feel like that's that's often where where it comes from. Yeah, I definitely uh, identify with the being an asshole to other people part, <laughs> and and not really knowing why. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. this um, it, it it takes a long time to come to terms with the fact that you're experiencing trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes even when you know that you are working through a traumatic moment or you've just had a traumatic experience, you still get frustrated with yourself because you're not emoting in a way that feels appropriate or aligned with your normal self, you know? Yes. Yes. Yep. Agreed. How about for you, Susie? All of that. And I would say too, like trauma, um, around like when you're a kid and you don't know what trauma is so then you kind of normalize things that happen to you and so you think that that's real and then you grow up maybe you turn into an asshole to other people and you don't know why um Mm -hmm. and i think also like living in the united states where like white supremacy cultural norms say one thing and we know that those are the reason why racism, sexism, homophobia, like all of the isms happen is because we've got these set of norms that are trauma. So like mm-hmm. or cause trauma because we feel like we're supposed to be a certain way because the norms of where we live say it, but it's like antithetical to like what we actually believe or feel. And so then trauma is holding both realities and not knowing how to navigate between them and then that causes trauma also i think i agree and i also feel like and dr Raydell, you tell me what you think but 
in many cultures where trauma has been generational, it becomes part of the culture almost, you know, and for a lot of populations who've been in the United States for a long time, when you do vocalize your trauma, people don't really care because they're kind of like, well, get over it, girl. We all go through that. And it's like, right. <laughs> we don't yes. have to be doing that. You know, we don't have yes. to like allow systems to keep doing this to us. Right. Um, we can divest and we can um, name it and, and seek healing and therapy for those types of things. Right. And mm-hmm. also interrupt those processes if we mobilize properly. And so yeah. kind of going back to what you were saying, Susie, about like um, these traumatic things becoming the norm and and not really knowing that it doesn't have Mm -hmm. to be that way. You know, um, I think that's really common, particularly in certain cultures where oppression has been at the center of the culture generationally, particularly for um, black and brown people in the United States. For sure. Um, Example. So I used to work at a a nonprofit that the leadership was um, all people of color. Um, and I chose to go there because I was working at a nonprofit where the leadership was not people of color. And so I was like, okay, let me go try this. Like, it should be different. And in a lot of ways it was, but in a lot of ways it wasn't. Like, there were so many aspects of white supremacy culture that were perpetuated. And um, to point that out, like, the responses were, but, you know, you know, in our generation, like, we worked, you know, twice as hard. So, Y'all have to work this hard too. And it's like, but why, why, why do you want us to go through what you went through? Like, don't you want it to be a little bit better for us? Like, why do we, why does the struggle have to be the struggle all the time? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was kind of eye-opening for me to, to, to see just how ingrained, especially, you know, things around work culture and hustling and grinding and, you know, achieving um, how much that is just, ingrained in people of color and how that promotes generational trauma and just like you were saying like you know you shouldn't be complaining because we all going through it um but like why does it have to be that way it could be okay let me help you figure out how to be a little bit more free than I was um because I know how much of you know a hellish experience that was on me so yeah and I think particularly in education I see so many educators of color and I totally understand why, but they just succumb, you know, they just start to toe the line because it's like, you know what? I can't keep fighting this. And Mm -hmm. I think as a coping mechanism and as a survival tactic, people just stop pushing. Right. And that, that is exactly how white supremacy works, which is like, Mm -hmm. you're going to beat you down until you don't have anything left. Right. And, and, and I think for a lot of people, they feel their only option is to just go along with it after a certain period of time. Because the fire that I came into the classroom with, I, I know I don't have any more, you mm-hmm. know, because mm-hmm. I know, like, I, I don't, I mean, part of that is just like, you know, the newness of being a teacher is no longer there. But mm-hmm. also, the reality is that, like, there are so many systems that are so broken, and it's so devastating that for me as a black woman, I have to be really intentional about how, which things I tackle, right? And, and all of these systems that we're looking at, we would have to tackle that in our own personal time because we're still teachers. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. 
And so I feel like a lot of people just decide like, okay, all right, I'm going to do whatever you want. Right. And if you look at the dynamics historically, that has been the way things have gone for such a long time where mm-hmm. it's just like, you're tired mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you're tired and you're traumatized. Right. And, you know, when you share the, the definitions of trauma from um, Emily McKenzie and you talked about, you know, silence or freezing um, and those being responses to trauma, those, so fighting can be energy and time consuming, but freezing or being silent also like zaps your energy too, because you're still watching things fall apart around you, right? And especially if you are an educator, you're watching the children suffer from poor decision-making um, and just feeling hopeless, like you can't do anything about it. And so that zaps your mental and emotional energy as well. So while it's a different response, it still, it, it tears at you, you know? I feel like, you know, watching, having been in those situations, you know, it, my soul died a little bit, you know, feeling like I had to choose self-preservation over doing what is necessary for kids mm, mm-hmm. yeah and i almost wonder because i'm a freezer too if something is upsetting to me sit down but i also feel like in some ways that's more dangerous because i'm i'm holding it in right here you know when they talk about people not living as long as they could i know that i'm part of that group because i'm holding on to stuff that's been upsetting to me for years and it would be healthier to emote. It would be healthier to like scream in somebody's face. But I often am just, especially because of where I am, those of you who might be listening in other parts of the country, I am located in Seattle, Washington, where passive aggressive behavior is king. And so if you emote on any level or if you have any kind of direct conversation, people feel deeply threatened. Mm-hmm. Let's move on. <laughs> Because that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, Dr. Riedel, those of you listening, I keep calling Dr. Riedel Dr. Riedel because she's a doctor and she that's has right. a PhD. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you can't see me, but I'm doing, what is this called? The Tootsie Roll. Is it? I thought the Tootsie Roll was the, with the legs and the, anyway, I was doing a dance <laughs> because we celebrate Black women who are doctors, yes, absolutely okay. so excited, yes, and I'm I'm so happy to be in your midst. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So let's talk about you being a PhD, a doctor. Tell us about your dissertation and the research, your findings, because I know that it's connected to trauma, and and it's so important. Yeah. Sure. Um, so first of all, I'm going to say that my dissertation and how I feel about academia, academia is not traditional. Um, so when I saw this question, I was like, I don't care about findings. Um, only because like the findings are what are me. They're my experience and what I I had to say. Um, so my, I went to grad school for my PhD because, I wanted to become a better teacher, not because I wanted to be some amazing researcher or find some tenure track, you know, um, job somewhere once I graduated, which is not what I'm doing. Um, So I did not care about, you know, 
traditions and research and qualitative, quantitative, whatever, I understand why those things have a place. But I wanted to um, make sense of why, as a quote unquote successful Black woman in education, why school was still so hard and traumatizing for me, both as a student and as a teacher. And I don't, I didn't find, I didn't think that I needed, and I still don't think that I need, you know, numbers and reports and whatever to be able to answer those questions for me. And so my dissertation was a self-study about those experiences. And there are definitely, you know, like traditional methods involved in that. Um, But I had to go searching for methods that fit who I am and what I was trying to do rather than trying to fit into what um, the ivory tower expected of me, um, which made the process extra challenging um, on top of just the regular challenges of trying to get a PhD. So I will say that the research that I did was basically a big, long self-exploration that exemplifies the experiences of Black women and Black girls um, going through the U.S. education system in the U.S. And I feel like you want to say something, so. Mm -mm. No, I'm listening. No? Okay, 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 okay. And so what I found is that school's traumatizing, which I will say actually going into it, that it wasn't actually what I was Like, that wasn't the reason why I did it. Um, I think I just wanted to better understand. But I found that through reading, yes, lots of other research and books and things like that, but also reading stories and talking to other Black women, talking to the Black women in my family from different generations, that for a long time, schools expect us to show up in a certain way. And that is not the way that that is communicated to us is through being punished when we don't meet those expectations, both as children, as students, and as educators. And that that experience is not unique to me. The stories and the examples that were, that were shared with me that I then put into my dissertation, but to me, those are the, those are the findings. Um, I want other black girls to be able to pick up my dissertation and read it and be like, ah, I have words to give to what I am going through right now because when I was a child, I didn't have that. I want other educators to pick up my dissertation and be like, okay, I understand that the system is set up in a way that is not for Black girls or Black women. And therefore, I need to be intentional about understanding that in my practice as a teacher. I uh, love to think about and refer back to like the original intention of Kimberly Crenshaw's work on intersectionality that it just who it makes me emotional thinking about it because the heart of what Kimberly Crenshaw was saying is that the world does not see black women there are not frames of reference in our justice system for being able to see black women and their experiences in the case she talks about Emma DeGraffin Reed, who's the woman that she represented in a, in, in a case where this concept first came up, the the basis of of the argument was that there was there was a way of seeing and understanding the experiences of um, white folks, and there was a way of seeing the experiences of black men, but it literally like there was no there was not a frame for 
understanding this woman's experience as a black, this person's experience as a black female and what that meant. And so having people talk about representation and that mattering, and that is true, but it's about so much more than representation. It is about being seen and going through the world as a young girl, I think feeling invisible um, and invisible, not in the sense that like I wasn't seen, but like I wasn't seen like who I am, my experiences from the way that I talk, from the way that I dress, from the way that I carry myself um, to the experiences that I have in my family and community. Those not matching what happens when I go out in the world means that, yes, the world does not see me. The world does not understand me. And if more educators can grasp that and be intentional about uh, being responsive to the needs of, and yes, representation is included in that, but being responsive to the needs of Black girls and Black girls having more opportunity to give words to the experience, those invisible experiences I was talking about, I would say, like, that's the findings. That's the, that's what came out of my dissertation. Dr. Adel, I have a follow-up question for that. Why do you think, and and Dr. Susie, because she's also a doctor for those of you, wait, should I call her Dr. Hodges? Just Susie's the doctor is fine. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm in the midst of greatness, y'all. I want to make sure I. <laughs> but, um, I am curious. Why do you think that the black female narrative is one that this society feels so comfortable excluding? I don't know. I'm society. Tell us why. Why do you feel so comfortable excluding black womanhood? I really don't know. I really don't know. Susie, as a white woman, can you talk to us on behalf of your people? Well, sure. I don't know either, but I would think maybe something along the lines or maybe it had to do with the feminist movement and how white women wanted privileges and rights, but they didn't want it for all women. And so exclusion out of different spaces that black women should have been in in the first place. So like, I don't know. That's just... I'm going to explain two concepts and see if it resonates with you two. You, you let me know what you think. I think right, white fragility is a big part of this when you're talking about feminism. And, oh, whoops, we just forgot to mention all the other women in the world except for us, right? Um, and, and white women keeping themselves at the center as if they're the only women in the world that deserve rights. And I also have this statistic that I recently heard, which is that Black women are the single most educated group of people in the world. Hey. And I wonder if, first of all, let's like pause and think about the resilience of one group that is persisting in a space where they are very intentionally left out and still rising, but also thinking about the fact that it, it almost feels like um, because of the fragility that other people are experiencing where they feel inadequate or they have insecurities connected to their own cultural dynamics, they go out of their way to make things difficult for others, right? And, mm -hmm. and there may have been a level of intentionality in the beginning, and maybe now it's just like, oh, that's just the way it is, and that's just the way mm -hmm. we are, right? Like now people just go along with it and they toe the line just because. 
But I don't mm. think it was a coincidence when this all first went down. You know what I mean? When I think about going back to trauma and how traumatic it feels to be in a space where you're speaking. And I know a lot about this because I've been dealing with this, um, especially the past year and a half, you know, going into a space and speaking with the experience that I have and the lens that I have being a black woman, because that's all I can be. And people telling you that that is not an appropriate way to think about things. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, yes, is that it's, it's, it's all of that. I mean, if you, I want to really dig into it and go back. It has to do with power, right? Yep. All those laws and decisions are made because the people making them wanted to have their power protected, right? White white women, and it goes back much further than the um, you know suffrage movement of the 1920s. Um, but it, I, it's not even a secret nowadays that white women intentionally were like, nope, we're not going to put black women on this ticket because we know it's not going to pass if you're on it, like. That's, you know, pretty common knowledge now. And so it was to protect their power so they could have the power um, that white male property owners had since, you know, the laws were first made because they were the ones with the power and they tried to protect their power by passing laws that protected that. So, I mean, really, when it comes down to it, it's about protecting power. But I feel like the heart of it, though, is like there's not really a real reason why people, you know, are afraid of and are condescending to um, black femininity. There's not really a real reason why. Um, they're selfish, stupid reasons um, that don't make any sense. But I, ultimately, I think it's about protecting power. But that's not really a real reason. So yeah, and I think too, along with that, like you know how Paulo Freire says, and I think this is why I don't know, Raydell and I are really focused on liberation and abolitionist teaching, and how this idea of oppressors oppressing and holding so tight onto that power because they can't see what a liberated society or world or situation would look like. All they know or think is that it would be flipped upside down. So the oppressor would then become the oppressed and there's no way like white men and white women would want to be on the other side of that. And instead of like interrupting white supremacy cultural norms and working towards liberating everybody, because there is no there is no idea or vision of what that could look like because it doesn't exist. Yeah, I think that paranoia, right? That reminds me of this like make America great again where because they can't they're so afraid of not being the dominant class, right? And having all decisions made in their favor. The paranoia around that is so scary for them. Um, or it's so intense, I guess, that they really don't even want to consider what a different America could look like. <laughs> they want to romanticize about a time in society when America was really not great for anybody else, like miserable for everyone else. America great again, like the 1950s, because they're talking about this golden age in the 1950s and 60s when other people were literally being killed just um, for some basic things that they they as human beings should have had the right to have and do. Um, it's really interesting that they think that that's a great time. And then they don't think they're racist. And that's what causes trauma, right? When you are literally being told that, oh, I don't have a problem with you. I just want to go back to a time that was really like scary for you, but I'm not racist or anything like that. <laughs> okay. Um, 
I also, I want to add, I think the, how trauma works for the person causing the trauma, Mm. um, I think it's important to consider because the reason why some of these things are able to persist, like in in racism and sexism and, and things like that in our education system and in our classrooms is because the people causing the trauma can forget about it essentially, right? Like in order to harm someone day after day after day or to harm someone really badly and to be able to live with yourself, that means you're not thinking about and really holding on to the trauma that you have caused. And so there's like, a, I feel like the, the, the gift of like amnesia or like really short term memory um, or some, you know, emotional detachment that people can have. Because I know, you know, sometimes I will say the wrong word to someone and I will perseverate on that thing for hours and days. Right. And so for you to be able to have the trauma that you have caused pointed out to you and you, you don't feel nothing and you ain't, you ain't willing to think about trying to change. There is, I don't know. I don't even know how to describe. Does that sound like a personality disorder to you? Because to me, like, I'm not sure to be... <laughs> maybe. But like, to me, I'm just like, because I, I like, that is hitting home for me so deep, right? Like these, I've had this experience. I am being treated in a way that is so deeply upsetting. And I'm telling people the way you're treating me is upsetting to me. And they're like, no, no, you just don't understand what's happening here. Oh, I guess maybe, maybe I'm just not bright enough to understand Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. racist. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of like gaslighting, right? Like what you're describing, right? And for me, if someone said what you're doing is upsetting to me, I would immediately pause. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I'm doing, but I don't want to do it anymore. Tell me what I need to do because I don't want you feeling like that around me. Right. But this, like, no, are you kidding me? That never happened. I'm so sorry you feel that way, but, like, that never <laughs> happened. Right? It's interesting yes. how the, mm-hmm. like, gaslighting and the complete denial were shutting the conversation down. I'm not even going to acknowledge your reality. So mm-hmm. how are you going to make progress with somebody who talks to you like that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So another question I have, Dr. Radell. Um, Because you talked about the research you did on your experience in education as a student. Mm -hmm. But I was wondering if you could make some connections to the trauma you experienced as a student and the trauma you continued experiencing as an educational professional. Well, I think they're not that different because it's the same system and the same ways of being, of of preparing teachers. Um, And so the, the system hasn't changed very much, you know, since, since compulsory schooling was a thing in the United States. Um, so I think my experiences are really not that different. I will say my understanding of the experiences is, is what really makes the difference. So mm. I mentioned earlier as a child, I didn't know what was happening to me when, you know, teachers would single me out for things and assume that I couldn't do things like I didn't know how to read um, when I could read with very clear comprehension before I even started kindergarten, right? So um, in those situations, like I'm a kid, I don't actually know what's happening. I just know that it doesn't feel good, right? Like I understand to a certain extent that I'm being thrown in a lower reading group um, and I'm bored. And so I start being chatty and then my teacher calls home to my mom 
And then they have a whole conversation. And my mom's like, because she knows how to read. And they're like, oh, well, lots of kids come to kindergarten knowing how to read, you know, memorizing books that they've read at home. And they're like, my, you know, my parents are like, no, she knows how to read. And one day I get my teacher asked me to take something to the office and I come back and I ask her a question about something that's on the paper. And she was like, why are you, how are you asking me about that? Like, how do you know that? I'm like, I read it on the paper. And she's like, I mean, it didn't happen this black and white, but then it's like, oh, she really does know how to read and being moved to then a different reading group. Like I remember that experience from being in kindergarten um, and I didn't understand what was happening. I just knew that there was an expectation placed on me that, that wasn't accurate. Um, and so lots of examples like that, but as a child, I don't have language to put to it. As an adult, those same things happen, but now I can talk about it. I can name it as racism. I can you know, name it as low expectations. I can name it as, again, not having frames for seeing who I am. Um, and yeah, like I said, the experiences haven't necessarily changed. It's how I understand them and I'm able to put language to it. So I would say similar things have happened as an adult, low expectations, um, people making assumptions, saying, okay, thinking, okay, you should go over here. You should do this thing. You should you know, be connected to this thing because I look at you and I make certain ass- assumptions about things. Um, I will say that as an adult and as a professional, probably the weight of all of these traumatic experiences or all of these experiences um, adding up to one big racial trauma experience that the weight of them is on me more and probably how I have shown up like that shows on me. So if I go into a space that is mostly white people, my body already is like, and that then is going to lead to how people are perceiving me. They're probably like, look at this disgruntled, angry black woman coming into the space. But, you know, after years and years of experiencing that, like, it's hard sometimes not to walk into a predominantly fully white space and not just be like, I'm tired already. We haven't even done anything yet. I think in summary, the experiences are not that different, but how I react and show up to the experiences is a little bit different. I will say that at this point in life, though, um, rather than show up and be like, I am much more uh, aware in advance and of what a situation might be. And then I will choose not to be a part of it if that's how I feel. So if I feel like it's going to be one of those situations, I'm going to say no, or I'm going to go in there like that. And that is how I'm going to show up. And I don't care what people think. Do you feel like you were more resilient back then when you were experiencing trauma? Or do you think you're more resilient now? That's an interesting question because like, can you be really resilient if you don't really know what it is you're resisting or you have resisted? And so again, like I said, as a, as a kid, I didn't necessarily know um, Mm -hmm. and couldn't necessarily put words to it. And so I felt like I just kept waking up and showing up because like, that's what you do. You do what adults tell you to do, right? As an adult now, I feel like I can make choices for myself. And so that to me, maybe, yeah, I think that has to be involved in being resilient. I, yeah, I, I, I make the choices in, in, in bouncing back or not, or how I bounce back. Um, and I think that's a, yeah, a big difference in the, the childhood bounce back versus the bounce back as an adult. 
Susie, do you feel like schooling was traumatic for you? No, I for sure didn't like it, but I don't think it caused me trauma. Mm. I think my trauma came from home, but not from school. There were I things think at school that were traumatic, but that's because of things I brought from home. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So, like, I don't, I mean, that. do you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm still, I don't know. I think I'm trying to convince myself. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I would say, like, the things I remember from school that were negative were, like, I just always wanted to play. And at school, you can't play except for your 15 minutes at recess. And that was not enough time for me. I had too much energy and I needed to play. So I shut down a lot. I was quiet. Mm. Which you both know, I'm not so quiet. <laughs> but at school, you couldn't, I mean, I would just, my mom would be in conferences and she would say, are we sure you're talking about the same person? Because I can't get the girl to stop talking. Mm. Like, what? She talks at home? <laughs> Yeah, I had a really interesting educational experience in my formative years um, in elementary school. I went to private school. I, I went to private school all the way up to college. But in elementary school, I went to a basically all back, black uh, private school. And so it was like a, you know, struggling Catholic school. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was, I guess it, didn't occur to me that we were not like other, our experience was different, I guess, mm. because everyone I knew had parents that were well-educated, had good jobs. You know, I grew up in the central area at a time when it was almost exclusively black. And so we would sometimes walk to school together or we'd walk to each other's houses, right? It was a very different reality because everyone I knew was just like me, like a middle-class black person. Mm. Um, so I, I didn't, it was hard for me when I got older and I was being treated differently for behaving mm. the way that I've always behaved, um, mm. and feeling so isolated. That was very traumatic, you know, and especially in the professional setting, being the only person like myself that got to be really difficult because people would start to feel threatened by little things that I would say or do. And I, I just saw it as me being myself. You know, if I have an opinion, I speak on it. Or if I'm having a bad day, I might not be in a great mood. And they're like, she's attacking me, right? And it was like, you know, using very triggering language because they are um, transferring, like it, it had more to do with me being a black woman than me just being myself. Um, and that became very traumatic. And so I would say that my professional experience has been much in a way I almost wish I had experienced the trauma as a child because then I've been prepared and now as an adult having experienced this type of trauma it is so jarring because I, I, I do not have the tools <laughs> that the average black person has <laughs> and yeah. I'm not coping well with it because I've never experienced this kind of treatment in my life mm. Mm. <laughs> Moving on. I think it's interesting that, to go. Go ahead, Riddell. I was going to say, I think, though, that even though it might show up differently, like, it's still trauma, though. And I feel like 
also because culturally in the black community until more recently and still though, um, you know, like therapy and getting help and those things are like, like you, you didn't do that. Right. And we didn't talk about those things. And most black families don't, didn't, um, it's starting to be more common now, but I think because of that, that even those of us who did have those experiences, those traumatic experiences growing up that like we didn't deal with it. And so we don't have a lot of the tools either. And so as adults, it's, it's coming out and we're having to, to figure it out and work through it. And like you were saying earlier with the generational stuff, it's like, yeah, life is hard. So, you know, tighten your belt and keep going, you know, that kind of an attitude. So I think it's interesting that, you know, as someone who, who grew up going to school with other black folks, um, that still then we're here in our mid thirties and we still have similar, we're in similar places in terms of dealing with the stuff. Um, because it's just, yeah, it's not, it's not really talked about how you deal with it. It's not really talked about. And it makes me so sad because I talked to a handful of women of color in education that are experiencing what you and I have described that we're all being characterized in this way where it's like about a stereotype where it's like, I can't tell you how many times this year I've been called angry. Mm-hmm, <laughs> like, mm-hmm, have you mm-hmm. ever maybe I'm not an angry person at all, mm-hmm. but I've been characterized as angry. I've been characterized as having an attitude problem because the way you're treating me is not okay with me. And I told you that, and you don't mm-hmm. want to stop treating me that way, but you want me to change my attitude. Yes. <laughs> and, that's, and that is like, like peak gaslight, right? Yes. <laughs> you know, and I, I have a really hard time with that because going back, and I keep saying this, we are still being held to the same standard as everyone else, right? So we're still trying to navigate this educational system that's like deeply messed up. And, mm-hmm. and especially during COVID is like a hot mess, right? right. <laughs> and now you're getting in my face calling me angry because mm-hmm. I'm asking you to treat me like a normal human being. Mm-hmm education in my opinion i'm very proud of i I don't have a phd but i i do have an education from one of the best universities in the world and i i feel confident that what i'm bringing to the table is tried and true you know i'm Mm -hmm. not picking stuff up and pulling it from the sky or pulling it from one note (laughs) 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 like you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I think working in an environment where people are really rigid or where people have a problem, they'd rather toe the line than listen mm-hmm. to an, a different voice. Yes. Because and is them, you know, that's yes. frustrating. Yes. And even like the expectation that you need to have some kind of a degree in order to yeah. speak to an experience or situation, like, why does my story, why does me what I'm saying right now in this moment not matter? Why is that not enough? Why does certain letters behind my name, why does that give more authority to what I'm saying? And not to mention that sometimes I'm angry and I have, there's reason for me to be angry. And right. I need white people to like get on board with that. Like if I have brought up to you several times that, you know, there is a pattern of, the black boys in the school being the focus of these like special faculty meetings. And I have concerns about that and you haven't listened to me. And there are plenty of statistics that talk about 
you know, black boys in school and how they're disciplined, um, I'm going to be angry. And I think I have a right to be angry about that because that is their life. That is their livelihood. That is their future on the line. Every time you're like, oh, we'll get to it. Or it's not that big a deal. Like, yes, that's going to make me angry. And I think that's reasonable to be angry at. So like, I need white people to like, not be so afraid of emotions. Like, Oh, there's this podcast that someone shared with me recently. I can't remember what it's called, but it's about anger in like the justice movement and how that has a place, right? Like people being complacent, people waiting for people to be ready, people feeling comfortable. That's not going to get us anywhere. Like that fire, the fuel and the passion that comes from anger. Like we don't have to be afraid of that. Anger is not necessarily a bad thing. Now we're not talking about being threatening. We're not talking about hurting people. right? Right. But like, we should all be angry. Like, look at the things that have happened over the last 400 years, right? Mm -hmm. Look at the legacy of what this country is. Look at what education is. Look at how outcomes in education have barely changed over the last however many decades, right? And usually not in favor of students of color and students who live in poverty-impacted communities. Like, more people should be angry. Like, why are you not angry about this is what I want to know. Yeah. And anger is like, because you love something, mm-hmm. right? So like, if I'm angry about something, it's because I deeply love something or someone. And so like, I think that's how I felt about education. And I felt being that I was angry a lot too, because I saw injustice and inequity and nobody was listening mm-hmm. about it. And so like, anger and love like go hand in hand. And if you're not angry, then you don't love something or you're not feeling love in it. I think the one thing I really struggle with when it comes to white supremacy, and then I have one final question and we can wrap it up. Um, I have a really hard time with white people because they toe the line. They go along with stuff that makes no sense and they don't question <laughs> it. They don't, they're just like, well, that's what so-and-so said. And it's like, but think about it. Think about whether that makes sense. Mm. Like you have a brain you have data, you have all of this information. As an educator, you know these kids sometimes better than the people making the decisions. Mm-hmm. Does what they say make sense to you? And if not, mm-hmm. why the hell are you not pushing back? But the reason why these systems won't change is because there are so many people who are not traumatized but don't care enough about the trauma that other people are experiencing to interrupt the process because they don't want to inconvenience themselves. And that is the part that I have a hard time respecting. Like, I can't respect you when you sit here and you see how upset and how hurt I am. Or when you see how upset and hurt people like me are. And you're just like, well, I don't have a problem. And it's like, just because you don't have a problem doesn't mean that there is no problem. Preach. Last question, Dr. Rado. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what advice do you have staff experiencing trauma or people who work in the educational system that are experiencing trauma right now? First, I want to go back to something Susie said a little bit ago about how she doesn't think that she was traumatized in school, but she didn't like it. And so I think it's important for for white folks to um, appreciate that distinction I'm not saying that white folks can't be traumatized from their schooling experience, but um, how beautiful and awesome would it be if fragility was pushed to the side and they sat and thought about that for the for a moment 
to really see like, is it trauma or is it that like, I didn't like school um, because, or, you know, like school was boring or didn't work for me in certain ways. Um, because for a lot of people of color, I think it's both. I think school doesn't work and it's traumatizing. And so in responding to this question, I don't, I don't know what that is for white people. And I feel like I can't, and I don't need to speak to their experiences, but I will say for staff of color experiencing trauma, I would want people to know that they have power over their lives. You do not have to stay in a traumatic situation. Mm -hmm. And I say that both as a person who's experienced trauma in the education system and a person who has experienced trauma in her personal life. Like you do not have to stay in a traumatic situation. Yes, it might seem hard to get out at the time. You might feel like, I don't know what other options I have. I've only ever been a teacher, so I don't know what else I can do. You know, but that 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 kind of that's that's what trauma does to you. It gives you with this cycle of thinking like, oh, this is where I am. I have to stay here. I have to figure out. I have to work. And you actually have to do that. You can leave a traumatic situation. Like, there's always another way. Like, I um, am, you know, I believe in God, and so I believe that there is like th- nothing is ever like the end. If I don't, if I'm not meant to be there. And maybe the reason it feels so traumatic is because it's pushing me to go and and be somewhere else and have an impact somewhere else. But like, I would say through my traumatic experiences as as a teacher, that that's a very important lesson that I learned because like, and Susie and I both went through this of like, we don't want to leave our students in the middle of the year, you know, like that's, that's not okay. It's, you know, but actually it is like taking care of yourself so that you don't have to wake up crying every morning on your drive to school. You don't have to do that. You do not have to do that. Um, You do not have to be the savior and protector of every child that comes into your orbit. Right. And I know we feel that way, but we can't do it all. And we have to take care of ourselves first. And so my biggest piece of advice is if you're experiencing trauma, like take a moment to think about, if the environment is cause if that's what's causing the trauma, then you need to get out of there. And if you need advice on where to go, what to do next, you can call me up, holler at me, send me an email. Um, because black people in particular, like we are so creative and innovative. Like living in Ghana has shown me that so much. People who have nothing but like still uh, just the creativity in music and in dress and an expression that shows up in our people like that is living in our bones and so we can find something else to do we do not have to stay in that harmful place um so that's my biggest piece of 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 advice um don't accept it don't stay in there get yeah get get your freedom get free i also think that it's important to recognize too that if a place is feeling traumatic, that it's not going to change tomorrow either. Right. So these systems and things have been around for a long time and the people who lead them are, have been entrenched in the systems and in the society for a long time. So it's, it's not even fair (laughs) to have the expectation that like a school or a leader or something is going to change and be different a month from now, a year from now. If the environment is traumatic and causing you trauma, that's my advice is, is to leave there because it's, 
it's not going to change. If it does, it's going to take a long time to change. And I say that also from the perspective of a coach who works with leaders in education around these very things, right? Talking about the culture of the team, the culture of the school, and the challenges that, um, that, are, that are there that make team culture hard. And so much of them ha- are grounded in, in, in racist practices and racist behaviors. It takes time to change that. Do we want people to wake up and recognize that like tomorrow? Yes, but that's, that's not the reality. And so change is going to take time. And if you are not, if you feel like you can't withstand the time and the heat and the pressure that it's going to take for those changes to come about, then get out of there. You do not have to be a martyr. Your impact can be used somewhere else. If I hadn't left the traumatic teaching experience that I had left, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. And I have a much broader um, impact working with people who are going into teacher preparation programs, people who design and lead the teacher preparation programs to be able to work with them and the trickle down effect for what that means for students in classrooms, much broader impact. And I would not have gotten there if I didn't leave a, a traumatic a teaching a traumatic teaching experience um, and realize that I didn't like my my genius my magic my resilience all of that can be applied somewhere else the world kept spinning that school kept running things did not burn down without me right and um, I'm I'm better for it so get out that's my advice I hope you all heard that. You do not have to continue sitting there and absorbing abuse at other people's hands. Mm -hmm. And I want you to know I've been talking into a microphone for an hour and it wasn't plugged in. (laughs) (laughs) What's funny is it sounds like you're on a microphone, though. (laughs) It really does. It's funny. (laughs) That is funny. <laughs> closing words, Susie. <laughs> uh, thank you for letting me be here with this conversation. Absolutely. That's it. Wait, I mean. Oh no! I mean, <laughs> come on, Susie. You're a mistalkative in school. Remember? <laughs> yes. But I also learned that if something has been said, there is no need for me to repeat or say more because it's already in the space. Um, And with that, everybody who's listening, Raydell and I go back a long way. And I love this woman. She's one of my bestest friends and most favorite people in the whole wide world. And I've not seen her face (laughs) in a long time. And I'm just so glad for this opportunity and that Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your experience and being so vulnerable with us. Um, we hope to have you again. Um, and I hope that everything goes well for you in the new year. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye.